You are listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. The field of ophthalmic pathology is highly specialized. Today we will find out how some of the intricacies of the field work and how one doctor turned it into a career. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Elise Torsinski, who is an ophthalmic pathologist and a consultant to the medical examiner's office for over 15 years. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Dr. Torsinski, I've been in the medical field also for over 15 years, and I've never heard of an ophthalmic pathologist. Well, there are not many of us. There are maybe 100 or 120 around the country. It's a field in which the tissues around the eyes that are removed surgically are examined by someone who has special training in eye pathology. And usually people come either from through the pathway of being an ophthalmologist, basic training in ophthalmology, or basic training in pathology. And most people have the ophthalmic pathway. I got interested in this field during my residency in ophthalmology when I had an experience to work uh, with a microscope and with diagnosis of tissues under the microscope. We do exactly what other pathologists do. When tissues are removed surgically, they're fixed in formalin, processed, slides are made, the slides are given to me, and I look at the slides and make a diagnosis. I had decided along the way someplace that I would like to continue my career in a medical school, uh, in an ophthalmology training program. So for that, one really needs to have a special field. I had looked at all the clinical fields, and none of them drew me uh, strongly, but eye pathology did. So after my basic three years in ophthalmology, I took two years in eye pathology at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Washington, D.C. Doctor, was there any interesting case that drew you to the pathology aspect that you can recall from your training? At one point, I was working in the VA, and a veteran came in who had pretty profound proptosis. And uh, the upshot of this was was that this was a large malignant melanoma of the optic nerve sheath. This is a rare place for, for such a tumor to develop. So we had had the slides and, and had a lot of discussion about this, and it was very interesting to me. And that was basically one of the touchstones in my decision. How, how did it happen that you fell into becoming an expert witness? Uh, one of my residents had spent time with the uh, Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, and a child came into the University of Chicago who had subdural hematomas, was comatose, convulsing, and was found to have very severe and very interesting uh, eye hemorrhages. And the child died within a few days, so an autopsy was done. And because the circumstances of how this child had been injured were questionable, the medical examiner took over the case. And my resident, knowing people in the medical examiner's office, said, oh, let us have the eyes. (laughs) And that's how it all started. And um, after that, the medical examiner had not had anybody who was specially designated to do the eyes. And there are only certain cases in which the eyes are important. So they asked me if I would be their consultant. And I that happened in about 1986. And I remained as medical consultant until 2001 or 2002. So are you doing any consulting currently? Not specifically in ophthalmic pathology. I'm basically retired from that. My chores in that area have been taken over by another physician at Rush. Did you enjoy being an expert witness? Oh, yes. I I found it to be insight into a whole area of life, 
professional responsibilities, community involvement that I never had any really close contact with. I found it a very interesting experience. Do you recall if any cases were actually decided based on your findings? Well, there were a number of them where our, my findings were important uh, because of the kind of conditions that occur with shaken babies. That if there are no external injuries, the medical <clears throat> examiner is looking for related injuries, and usually these children would have subdural hematomas, and then the, my examination would find retinal hemorrhages. And that very often was a very uh, important finding uh, for the prosecution of the case. Can you talk a little bit more about being a consultant to the medical examiner's office? What, what does that exactly entail? The medical examiner gets the body and then removes the eyes and sends them uh, to the consultant. And then from there on, I would process them in the same way any surgical tissue or autopsy tissue is processed. Get the slides, read the slides, and then make a detailed report of what I found. And I would often talk to the medical examiner about other findings in the case. I'd have some clinical or, or previous information. For instance, I'd often get a copy of the police report, some uh, short description of, of the diagnoses that the medical examiner had made on the preliminary examination, and then put these all together. Can you tell me if being a consultant to the medical examiner's office pays well? No. <laughs> it pays almost nothing. And because there aren't that many cases, it's not a full-time job by any means. But it was more my basic interest in all of this that kept me going in this area. So how were you able to support yourself in this specific field? Basically by being a general ophthalmologist. So this was just one aspect of your practice? Yes. It was my teaching aspect of my practice. So a modest amount of my time was spent preparing lectures, seminars for the residents, and reporting on, on the tissues that had been sent either from autopsy or from surgical sources. Is there an association out there where <clears throat> ophthalmic pathologists belong to, where an attorney could find one of you if he needed one? Not that I know of. It's usually by word of mouth. If there's a medical school in the area, usually um, they call the Department of Ophthalmology and find out if somebody's doing the eye pathology. And if that person is not interested in, in testifying or being involved with the medical examiner, then they usually can know somebody else either in the area or not too far away that would be willing to do this. Dr. Torsinski, how many cases did you get to testify in during your career? Probably around 25, maybe 30. I did actually about 250 cases of eyes from the medical examiner's office in my career, but many of these had more injuries so that my testimony was not that important. It was in this very limited group where there were some dural hematomas and retinal hemorrhages, that my testimony was important. Dr. Torsinski, we have a lot of primary care physicians who listen to the show, and I was wondering if you could impart some of your wisdom to us. Are there certain life-threatening diseases that we as out in the front lines can diagnose by looking at the eye? Well, sometimes you can do this, but I think the most important disease that, that primary care physicians, and especially pediatricians should be aware of is retinoblastoma. And this can be present at birth. This is a, a tumor, a malignant tumor of the retina of the eye. And this tumor can be present at birth, usually develops before the age of three. Sometimes there's a family history of it in about 20 to 30 percent, but very often it's a, a sporadic condition. 
And if a child is brought in to a general medical doctor or a pediatrician and the mother says, well, my baby's eyes were straight and now one's turning in, or we took a picture and one of the eyes has a white pupil instead of a red pupil, um, those things should be immediately referred to an ophthalmologist because those can be signs that this baby has a retinoblastoma. So it's the white reflex that you see and, and the absence of the red reflex that's the trigger. That's right, or um, a change in the position of the eye so that a child that was had straight eyes now has either an eye turning in, um, an esotropia, or an eye turning out, an exotropia. But it's most often an esotropia. For some reason or other, there's occasionally a pediatrician who says, well, in a year or something, we'll have the baby looked at by the ophthalmologist. But it's important not only for the diagnosis of retinoblastoma, but also for the diagnosis of amblyopia, that that eye can become uh, less visually acute by being deprived of, a, of an adequate target. So for both reasons, the child should be referred to an ophthalmologist immediately. And as we age, are there other diseases that we should start looking for? Well, there are a few, one um, or two other life-threatening diseases are malignant melanoma of the uveal tract, and then you can also get a sebaceous carcinoma of the eyelids. And these usually occur more often in elderly people. Now, changes can occur in the eyes, especially with diabetes, and the, the current uh, protocols for taking care of diabetes is to have an ophthalmologist examination once a year. And this is very important. If the person is under very good control of their blood sugar, their chances of developing retinopathy, which is a blinding disease, is very low. So it's, it's important that they have an examination once a year. Can you talk a little more about melanoma of the eye? Yeah, melanoma is a malignant tumor of the cells that produce color in the eye. The uveal tract has melanocytes in, in the iris, in the ciliary body, in the retina, and even in the conjunctiva. So you can get a melanoma even of the outside of the eye, which would be relatively easy to spot because it's a brown spot. In the eye, if a person has very light blue or gray eyes, a brown tumor growing on the surface of the iris is also easily um, identified. But in the more posterior parts of the eye, the ciliary body and the retina, these are not easily seen. So a, a, an adult person might notice, oh, a shadow, or some feel that there's something that's crossing their visual axis. And they should be uh, looked at very carefully by an ophthalmologist, a good dilated examination, so that they can be treated. Now, sometimes the eye has to be enucleated Sometimes it can be treated with various radioplaques. Doctor, I was wondering if for the primary care physicians, again, that are looking at eyes that are not dilated, is there something, some special trick we could use to get a good look at the retina? That can be pretty hard in an undilated pupil in kind of a uh, moving around child. I can't think of any special tricks they can try, and they certainly should try, and if there's no neurological reason why they can't di um, tell them they shouldn't dilate the eyes, then I think that occasionally for them to dilate the eyes and take a better look, it's much easier to see. Because you can even with a, um, a moving baby, you can get this flash-by look, and you can see that everything looks okay or it doesn't. 
And if it doesn't, if you have any questions, then you just send the baby to see the ophthalmologist. Because because we will actually do an examination under anesthesia if we're not satisfied with the clinic examination. And what's the earliest you've seen glaucoma present in an adult patient? Oh, it, it can present in an adult as early as 20. Mostly it comes at 40 or later. But also glaucoma is a, a disease which can affect infants and young children. If you remember the movie about Ray Charles, that's what he was blind from. And if you saw that picture... That those early sequences are just classic for infantile or childhood glaucoma. I'll have to rewatch that movie and look for it. No pun intended. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Elise Torsinski. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.